Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today, coming back for like kind of a one and a half, but more, you know, more like a part two, uh, Connor Oberst, of course, from Bright Eyes, of Commander Venus, of more, more on that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with the podcast, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and also a guy who, uh, he prepped me for this interview. He's like, you're going to get Connor in there. I want you to ask him these questions, you know? And so thank you, buddy. I love you so much, Tris. Uh, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by letting all your friends know about what we do over here on the podcast. You can say there's a show and then like one week they'll have, you know, uh, you know, the Connor Oberst, and then one week they'll have Penelope Spheris, and then one week they'll have, uh, you know, a wrestler back on or something. You know, that, that, that's really what we try and do here. Just So just tell everyone that we got this thing going on over here, or you can subscribe to it and rate it on your platform of choice, or you can head over to uh, patreon.com. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people that do and support the show over there and check out footnotes and, and some of the other stuff we do over on the Patreon. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of my fr- fine friends over there at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, uh, don't do this out of your own pocket and we'll help you cover the cost of doing the show each and every week. And they do that. And I just do whatever I want on the show. So thank you for them. Because it, it, they, they I just got my prices raised over here on uh, my podcast hosting place and there's costs on, on, on doing a podcast, nominal costs, but it's weird how this year I got a, I got a note from the podcast provider being like, congratulations, you know, you did more people are listening than ever, which is amazing. Thank you for listening and joining this thing. Uh, but you owe us more money now because more people are listening. So, you know, it's Biggie was right. Biggie was right every time. Um, but there's no more listeners does not equate to more money anyway. I I love doing this thing and I appreciate all of you listening each and every week. You know, I don't really talk. We don't really talk like this over here on the podcast very much. So I just want you all to know, um, you know, this has been a long year for, uh, all of us. I think everyone's got their own issues. So I'm not going to pretend like there's people listening right now that haven't dealt with a lot worse than I've had to deal with this year. But, um, yeah, I really appreciate you all being here each and every week and listening. And, uh, here we close in on episode 300 and, uh, you know, I'm, I just, I'm very grateful that I get to do this thing. And, uh, I'm very uh, glad that I have it now. (laughs) Fucked up's done. And now that the wrestling stuff's done, I don't mean fucked up's done. Don't, don't read anything into that. But I mean, like, you know, it's, I'm just not working on stuff right now as far as touring and going out there. So, Uh, This podcast has provided uh, a lot of, uh, you know, like I say, towards the end of the show or at the end of the show each week, uh, putting stuff out there creatively, it helps, you know, it helps you feel uh, a little bit better. And it's definitely helped me uh, feel a little bit better this year. It's been my creative outlet. So I I really appreciate you giving me the uh, forum to do this, everyone. And if you made it through that, now onto the Connor Oberst episode. Uh, Today on the show from the band Bright Eyes, Connor Oberst. Now, Connor is a incredible songwriter, like a, a once in a generation kind of songwriter and someone who like, you know, really fought the good fight in kind of the name of punk rock ethics and, and what he felt was important in terms of, you know, going out there and being able to tour and being able to tour in a way where he, he felt his music was, you know, getting out to the audience on his own terms and, and, you know, fighting against clear channel and, all this stuff that, you know, is important and really, you know, was speaking for a lot of people and bands that, you know, didn't necessarily want to do things this way and were kind of forced in a position where they had to do things this way. And he, he fought the good fight on that one. So he's someone who I've always had a ton of respect for. And I've actually had a chance to, to interview him a few times now, like one time uh, at the wedge, the old TV show I used to do. And then, uh, before on the show when he came on with Phoebe Bridgers. And so I've never really had the chance to kind of sit down and go one-on-one in depth 
style with them. And so this is the opportunity that I got to do it. And I am uh, very glad you can now get to hear it. Bright Eyes also has a brand new awesome record that you should definitely go out of your way to hear. It's a fantastic album. Down in the Weeds Where the World Once Was, uh, which is out now on all those platforms, including uh, vinyl but from Dead Oceans. And, and check it out. Yeah, fantastic album. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Connor Oberst on Turn It a Punk. Connor, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Danny. It's great to be back. Well, as we were just talking, uh, well, actually, we didn't even talk about this off here, but like last time I interviewed you, it was with Phoebe. So I felt like my my nerdy attention was divided, and now I feel like I can 100% focus the punishment <laughs> on <Yeah>. yourself. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. That's fine. I, I don't like sharing the spotlight with her. You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> this way, like, you know, it's, it's hard to geographically jump between Omaha and Los Angeles back and forth, but now we are in Omaha, baby. We are, we are ready. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, well, I guess like listening back to the first conversation, one thing that, uh, you know, uh, that really kind of struck out or jumped out to me was like that story you told about your friend's band that stayed at your mom's house or your parents' house for a month. Oh uh, yeah. Eating food. And you said your parents had a pretty cool open door policy when it came to bands and what other bands kind of stayed over there? Oh man. Um, I mean, lots over the years. I'm trying to think of notable. I mean, that was just, you know, I'm sure it was, where you were too you know that was kind of the the way you did it Mm -hmm. was um you would play which we did the same you know we did the same thing on tour where you know you'd be playing a show and then at some point you say hey if anyone's got a place for us to stay you know like now that just seems insane to me but (laughs) at the time that was really normal and we um traveled the country uh many many times basically doing that trying to think of I mean, uh, like, uh, that's another way I got, um, close to like my friend, Andy LaMaster, who's worked on like almost every Bright Eyes record who was from Athens, Georgia. So there was, there was definitely a segment of those bands. Like he had this band called Drip and there was a band, um, called Sunbrain, which was like David Dondero's like first band. And, um, yeah, there was like a connection there, um, Oh man, you're 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 taxing my memory here. Uh. <laughs> Sunbrain's an amazing band too. Like uh, you know, like obviously, you know, people in that band have had long careers, but like that band is is like a real cool kind of post-hardcore band. Wait, which one did you say? Sorry, Sunbrain. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were, yeah, that was like um, I don't know if we talked about this last time or not, but so my like high school band, um, Commander Venus, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I had when I was like fourteen which was me and Tim Kasher from Cursive and uh, Rob Manzel, who went on to kind of be the person that ran, still runs Saddle Creek Records. But that was my first band, and we ended up signing to this label, Grass Records, when I was like 14, which was a New York label that had a lot of great bands, Brainiac, The Wrens, Sunbrain. And we kind of knew of them because of this, there's a band from Omaha called Mousetrap that was like a cool punk band back in the early nineties and they had they had signed. So I think that's kinda how that label came on our radar. But you know, that was my first experience with I guess, you know, the real quote unquote music industry. So, you know, the first time went to South by Southwest and went to CMJ Festival and, you know, they gave us you know we went and recorded a record like in hoboken new jersey at this place water music you know in probably 95 or something like that and you know that was my first time like going to new york city and um yeah and like i think when i was telling you the band that stayed at my house for that long is that's uh stephanie druden who has long since been playing in all of our friends bands but that was her her band um I guess she's like just a couple of years older than me that stayed for that that long. So and they were from, yeah, they were from out here, and were part of like Still Life and all those kind of, I guess, hardcore bands from Cali back like in the day. Kind of ebullition scene type thing. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. 
So like was Mousetrap like was that kind of a generation directly before, you know, your guys' generation? Obviously there's people in your band much older than you, but I mean like was that like the precursor to to your scene? Yeah, I would say so. They were um they were uh you know, definitely a big deal in Omaha and everybody loved them and they, you know, yeah, would tour and um you know, all the things that seemed real exotic to us. Um, they were, they were probably, man, I actually ran into guys named Pat Buchanan, a singer. He actually lives out here, but, um, his name's Pat Buchanan. His name's yeah. Pat okay. Buchanan. And he went on, he had a bunch of bands. Yeah. Mouse, his name's Trap. Um, I'm trying to remember all his bands. Um, but, uh, anyway, he, yeah. So they were probably, I don't know. He's probably like 10 years older than me, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, but, yeah, they were they were sort of one of the bands that did things outside of Omaha. There was another band called uh, Ritual Device, which is this guy like uh, Tim Moss, who is weirdly like has been like a tour manager forever now. He like tour managed like Mike Patton and all these people. Anyway, they were they were like definitely like a older generation of like punk rock in Omaha that we yeah absolutely our our scene kind of looked up to them just because you know it, it was a it was a triumph when anyone kind of was able to do anything on a national level which was something obviously we kind of aspired to mm-hmm. well and we talked about this a little bit last time as well but like the idea that it, you know there weren't that many bands that got sort of like popular on the national stage short of mousetrap and as you mentioned before 311 um but like it feels like you know, it, it's very much like a, and because of that became like an insular scene. Like I've talked to a lot of people from Florida and they talk about how Gainesville, you know, became such a strong scene because it had to become insular because there wasn't that much stuff necessarily coming through or bands that were, you know, going out on national tours. So it just built itself up because of that. Was that similar? What was going on in Omaha? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that you know, I, I, I don't, I know, I don't know how much of this I'm repeating from the last time we talked, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, there was a feeling that if you wanted to make something happen, it really was, uh, you know, DIY, not because, uh, as like an aesthetic or cause we thought it was cool. It was just like, that was the reality of it. You really had to, you had to kind of figure it out yourself. And so, um, yeah, we, and, and we had, you know, I know we talked about this, but there was this cool record store and aquarium. And so I think we were kind of instilled with, you know, whatever the sort of ideology of, of, you know, labels, um, you know, discord and merge and mm-hmm. labels that were essentially started by musicians that were focused on, you know, might've, might have bands from other places, but were focused on a local scene, obviously discord in North Carolina. And I think that those were, I guess, our models of the idea of like, let's have a label. And, you know, for the first good chunk of it, it was just, you know, just Omaha bands. And then, you know, eventually branched out into like, you know, I think like Rilo Kylie was one of the first bands that we put out that wasn't from Omaha, but um, yeah, you know, so it, it, but that was definitely the template. Yeah, like I, I guess that's like you know something you kind of have to do at a certain point. If no one's going to come and kind of like put out your records, and I think you talked about this last time, but like no one's going to invest in your scene, you kind of yeah. have to invest it in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was strange because, like I said, you know, Commander Venus ended up signing with that Grass label, and that was a good experience and a learning experience. But it also kind of, I think, um, m- made it more apparent that you know even if you do kind of get a, get a opportunity like that, you know, you're uh, a little fish in a big pond kind of thing. And maybe you're not going to, people aren't going to work as hard or, or care about it. And so I think we were lucky to have, you know, enough of our friends, obviously musicians that were all playing each other's bands, but also like another segment of our friends that were just, you know, whatever kind of hard-working midwest kids that were willing to uh stuff envelopes and you know do all the sort of 
actual work that goes in <laughs> goes into having a a little label you know yeah. so it was kind of you know yeah it was I, I guess and 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 I think you know to a certain degree right place right time you know that was you know I always I I I, I feel you know in a weird way I feel bad for kids that are starting you know that age and starting bands now i mean on one hand they have the internet and they have all the social media and they have band camp and you'd think it would be easier and maybe in some ways it is but it just seems like it's so it's so flooded that you know it's just it'd be you know there was just kind of it seemed to me that it was just there was less of it going on and so um you know i don't know in in, in more tangible in a way because i feel like the the universe of like bands on the internet is kind of such a endless um void and wilderness that be hard to like make a mark i suppose yeah no definitely and also there's something kind of wu-tang-esque about what you guys are doing too like <laughs> you're going out there and you're all signing different labels and and you know getting yourselves out there but yet it's all kind of servicing like the voltron when you come back together yeah i think that's definitely fair to say and and you know there was a certain point in the early 2000s that you know we reached this crossroads i guess where um you know bright eyes had interest from other labels the faint cursive all we could have all kind of gone our different ways at that point but we made a you know a concerted uh effort to you know, keep the collective together and sort of, yeah, you know, I guess greater than the sum of your parts kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think that that, you know, I think that really worked to all of our advantages for a few, you know, a number of years. And then, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get too uh, finger pointy or <laughs> eventually, you know, real money and business and, you know, it, 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 definitely like the collective aspect of it at some point we realized it was fading away and people did start going their own ways and you know since then i've put out records with you know merge and epitaph and universal and none such i mean i've been on like so many labels now dead oceans now you know so i've made the <laughs> i've made the rounds but um yeah you know that era of saddle creek you know, will obviously always be special to all of us that were around for that. It happened to Wu Tang too, though, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I, think, I think that's the problem with the collectives is that yeah. not not everyone has the same collective vision at a certain point. Yeah, and I mean, it, and there is so much. I mean, it's sad to say, but I think there is a real, um, you know, there is a real kind of innocence at that you know, age or when you're, I don't know, when you're young enough to still believe you can kind of conquer the world on your own terms, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I think we definitely had that, um, feeling for a long time. Um, and then, yeah, you know, obviously people get older and yeah, people start, you know, as they say, life intervenes and, um, yeah, some people, you know, decide to do other things with their life. Cause as you know, um, music doesn't always pay the bills. So, you know, you gotta, oh, yeah. you gotta do other things sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it also like, it's amazing what that optimism and youthful energy has done throughout history throughout the history of music, you know, like just looking at, you know, going back a generation before to like some of the labels you're talking about, like be it a discord or, or even a touch and go, you know, like just sort of this, idea that you know you can do something so absurd like put your impact on on culture you know as a young person and that's you know very few places other than punk rock you know and obviously rap music as well but like yeah you know not a lot of places say as a young person you, you know you can change the world yeah no i agree i think and that that has you know always been a part of the history it's like you know you i think it's there's a there's an element that you sort of do need to feel like an outsider in a way you know you need to feel a little bit like it's you against the world i think to to make some of that music and so it you know it 
stands to reason that it's gonna, you know, come from these sort of, I guess, uh, you know, slightly non-traditional music, uh, you know, music industry paths. Absolutely. Uh, you know, talking about history, uh, how much of like a, a resonance did a band like Digital Sex have on on you guys? Like, was it informing the faint sound at all? Or was there any sort of connection to that sort of like first wave of, you know, alternative music, for lack of a better term, kind of coming out of Omaha? You know, I only found out about their music, you know, much later. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess I can't speak for for Todd and like the faint people. They maybe they were hip to it before before I was, but, um, yeah, I, um, Derek Higgins, um, this is guy that I'm pretty sure that was, he was in that band. Um, and, uh, I've since kind of, you know, got to know him a little bit and he still plays music in, you know, around, uh, around town. But yeah, that was a little before my time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there like any sort of continuum that was kind of like happening from like an older kind of like alternative scene, like around that record store maybe was, or was it like you guys are kind of building something kind of new, like in the wake of Mousetrap, obviously in that, in those bands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there was, um, there was certainly people that, you know, were older, you know, almost, you know, I guess from kind of the eighties era mm-hmm. that were still around. I mean, one guy comes to mind, this guy, Alex McManus, who uh, has, you know, played in Bright Eyes at some point, and he um, he was in he was in bands. Um, what was I think the Acorns was the name of that band? Anyway, they're like some kind of like, yeah, '80s. I guess yeah, you'd call it alternative type music. Yeah, he went on to like again moved. I don't know what's up with the Athens connection, but move to Athens and play in like Vic Chestnut's band and um, make cool music. So, and he was in with like Simon Joyner, who was another big earlier hero of ours, like mm-hmm. a folk singer from Omaha. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was residual individuals that were around from that, but um, I don't know how much direct, I mean, maybe with like Tim Kasher and, like you know, like you said, a lot of the people in our scene were, you know, four or five years older than me, so they might have a more direct connection. I was always the young kid tagging along. Uh, uh, going back to that, uh, you know, Commander Venus, um, was there like what were the sort of the influences that you brought into that band? I mean, we really, you know, we wanted to kind of sound like. You know, I mean, we didn't get anywhere close to it, but, you know, we want to sound like the Pixies, basically, or, um, you know, like Pavement and um, kind of, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the, like, Chapel Hill kind of melodic punk rock stuff was big influences on us. Um, Yeah, it kind of, I feel like, sorry, go on. Oh, God, no. I was just going to say, I feel like that's in the beginning. And then we only made two records. Mm -hmm. And the second record, the one we made in New York, is actually, like, terrible. I highly recommend not listening to it. It was, was like, the height of my, like, puberty voice changing. You know, I think I I was, like, 16 when we recorded it. And just bad. And that was also, like even though I didn't really understand that it was, you know, I guess emo music, but then there was a sort of influx of bands in the Midwest, you know, the Captain Jazz is the, uh, this band Vitreous Humor from Lawrence that I liked a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, there was just, uh, you know, at the drive-in, you know, things that were starting to happen that, um, I think did like in start to influence our the music we we're making. Um, and so yeah, a lot of the I don't know what that sound is, but I always associate it with just you know I guess uh, yeah mid mid nineties Midwest hardcore punk rock whatever that is. 
Yeah, like I, I, I didn't find out about Cap and Jazz till after I knew about Joan of Arc, and they were always kind of like pitched to me as like an emo band. But you go back and listen to it; it's like a straight up punk band. Like it's, yeah, it's super love- aggressive. Oh, totally! I and love that, that band so much. Yeah, I do too. I mean, yeah, that, um, yeah, that record's amazing. Um, yeah, I think they only had like one record, um, but yeah, we we loved them, and um, yeah, so. Um, but it was, you know how it is. It's like, there was so many different things happening at once. Cause I was also, you know, I guess simultaneously getting more into singer songwriter stuff from like, you know, like Towns Van Zandt and like older mu- discovering older music that was also starting to like creep into my worldview, which is, I think why kind of ended up morphing into and you know bright eyes was sort of you know it was it really started as like a side project to commander venus where i was Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna make i'm gonna you know record more mellow acoustic based four track songs essentially and i was doing it kind of on the side and then when the band finally split up i i had um you know i don't know probably 50 songs or something like recorded and yeah, Rob, Rob Manzel, um, the guy that runs Saddle Creek and my other friend, Ted Stevens, who's in, who's in cursive and was in this band lullaby for the working class with, with Mogus. Um, they basically convinced me to make the very first Bright Eyes record, which is called collection of songs, which again, definitely don't recommend listening to it. Um, terrible four track recordings, but that was, um, yeah, I guess that's when it started to, my, my approach to music started to change from like the very, you know, I guess formulaic two guitars, drums and bass, you know, like distortion pedals to, I don't know, just experimenting with whatever instruments and players I could like get my hands on to like try to you know i was definitely i didn't want to sound like all the bands that you know were playing at the cog factory which was like the local punk club or whatever you know i wanted Mm -hmm. to make i guess you know what i would consider you know sort of like you know folk music i guess or like experimental weirdo folk music you know well, and going back to like, you know, Commander Venus time, like, you know, it's such a, you know, that era that you're kind of transitioning in your music taste. It's like such a huge, like more of my life changed. Like I'm doing a podcast about that period of my life 26 mm-hmm. years later, but from like the age of 14 to like 17 or maybe even 18, like those years are just like so pivotal in your uh, development as a person. Like, what was it like to kind of be going through that, but also like having the added sort of like situation of being in this band, like you're going to New York to make records, you know, you're on tour, you're going to CMJ. Even. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was such an escape and I, I really did in high school. I really felt like I was living a double life because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I went to, I went to an all boys Jesuit Catholic high school, you know, and <clears throat> hated it to, you know, didn't really have any friends just tried to like be as invisible as possible um and i think that everyone i went to school with just sort of i don't know either thought i was like just a weirdo or kind of like nerdy like whatever and i didn't but i know i never went to a prom i never went to really high school parties but what they didn't know is i was like you know every time I got out of school or every weekend I was at shows and I was having band practice and I was hanging out with people, you know, much older than me or from different schools. And I was like very happy. And I just thought of school as, you know, I thought of school as just like going to work. Like I just knew like if I, if I went and I like got good grades that my parents would like, keep letting me do crazy shit which was basically like get in a van with like 19 year olds and drive across the country you know and so so i had all this freedom but i was like smart enough to know like hey you got to kind of like you know you got to kind of keep it together as far as like what you know you got to look respectable even if maybe we you know maybe i was doing some wild shit on the side you know Mm -hmm. well it must have been like 
you know, cause like you're doing what most people have worked their lives to do as a job, right? Like there's a lot of bands like 15, you know, on grass records at that time yeah. that have been doing this for years at this point. And it's like a gateway to a major kind of label. Like it, it, did you look at it? Like, this is, this is it. I'm not going to have to worry about anything. This is going to be my, my ticket. No, I really didn't. I mean, <clears throat> I think that was another thing that was sort of in our, to our advantage as like a group of friends and the label mm -hmm. was that I think we really did celebrate every kind of milestone as if it was like the, you know, the summit on the peak <laughs> of the mountain, yes. you know, so like we're going to New York. Can you believe it? You know, we're going, you know, look, we look at, we have like real vinyl records, you know, everything was like really celebrated as if it was like, that was that was it you know going yeah. to europe for the first time whatever um which i think is a really healthy attitude and you know after i graduated high school i went to college for three semesters and that's when stuff started to get you know i you know i guess when i was 18 we did like letting off the happiness and then i was 19 we did like this uh every day and every night ep and then when I was 20, we made Fears and Mirrors, and by that time, it was like, it was getting weird in the sense of like, had a real, you know, was selling like, in our minds, lots of records, had a real booking agent, and yeah, it was like, I remember like the conversation with her, our booking agent at the time, this woman, Kathy Har, she was, she's like, hey, well, I can get you way more money if you'll tour when school is in. You know, and I was like, okay. And then I had to, you know, tell my mom and dad I was going to drop out of college. And they were like, you know, I think by that point they were like, yeah, kind of makes sense, you know. Yeah. But 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 even then I was like, oh, I'll go tour. And, it, you know, it's I was like working, you know, I was going to college and I was working jobs and, you know, but then we would go, um, you know, we'd go on a tour on a break or summer or whatever. And it's not like I was making tons of money, but if you're making, you know, essentially minimum wage in Omaha and then you can come, you can go on a rock and roll tour and come back with enough money to pay your rent for like a few months, you're like, why am I going to this job? You know, it's like, I can do the thing I love and make more money. And I mean, I guess I didn't, I never got a complete education, which I guess is the downside to it, but you know, you the education of rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> School of hard knocks, buddy. <laughs> um, once again, like I, I know I'm dwelling so much on Commander Venus, but I think that that first record's amazing. Like, have you ever thought about putting that out on vinyl? Because it's only CDs, right? That one is yes. That one's only CDs. <laughs> I don't know that we've ever seriously discussed putting it on vinyl. Um, it's also like, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like. <laughs> I actually liked the first one more than the second one mm -hmm. um, because it was like pre my voice changing. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's like, it's interesting to, to, you know, basically sing in your prepubescent voice. Yeah. You know, like I've kind of wish like I could like go back cause my voice has just gotten lower as each year has passed, you know, <laughs> like it'd be fun to be able to hit those high notes again, you know? Well, it's like um, when you go and see Brian Wilson and you're like, wow, time <laughs> ravages the voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not doing myself any favors, like smoking cigarettes and stuff, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, to answer your question, no, we, uh, we've, I don't think we've ever <laughs> seriously considered that. I don't know. I mean, probably be you and, uh, like three other people that would want it, but I think that, <laughs> I think, well, no, you're saying like, like you're saying, like, you know, kind of in the wake of the bands that you were, you know, influenced by on the second record. But like, I even put that first record in that same sort of category as cap and jazz and stuff like that. Like a scene developed out of that stuff. Like there, there became like lots of bands that, that tried to sound like that, or were going for that sound eventually. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm amazed by, um, kind of like, I guess, whatever you call like the second wave of emo or whatever, mm -hmm. like stuff from, um, actually a lot of the, a lot of bands totally blew by me, you know, that, you know, I've kind of heard from like, th like through Phoebe and like her group of friends where they'll be like, like there was this band, um, 
Tiger's Jaw that I'd never heard of. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is, this reminds me of this. Or I'll just hear these bands and I'm like, this could absolutely be a band from, you know, Chicago in like 1995, you know, mm-hmm. but it was made in like 2010. But by that point, I was so checked out to like that scene of music that I just, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't even aware. And, you know, obviously with like the advent of like emo night and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, that music definitely came back around again, you know. Well- it's funny. Do you know you know about one of the guys from Tiger's Jaws, like Project Wikiphase? No. Oh well, this is like whatever nth wave of emo we're into now. This is where it is now, and he does uh, emo trap, where oh, wow, <laughs> it's like it sounds like it could like you know total emo record from the '90s style vocals, but over kind of more trap informed beats. Uh huh. Um, and it's Sounds interesting. It's interesting, but it's like once again, it's this genre that. You know, it was maligned for years and then people like, you know, eventually got taken up as a marketing thing. And a lot of people that were labeled with it never wanted to be called it in the first place. But here we are and it's still surviving and still mutating and and still whatever this thing is, emotional hardcore, you know, it still goes on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I and I get it because it's, you know, what's obviously enjoyable and I, I like it. But also I think it's it's. I don't know. It's such a um, accessible kind of mm-hmm. music. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't take much to to do it. You know, <laughs> you gotta get gotta get a few of your friends. You gotta get some, you know, amps and a, some distortion pedals, and you know, away you go. And that's, you know, I think that's beautiful. It's like, um, yeah, the bar of entry is is nice, and it's like visceral. You know, I, I find yeah. like when I hear bands that are doing that and no slight on anybody's musical interests but i think there was also like a whole decade of you know indie rock that i or you know quote unquote that i didn't really like or understand which was like when everyone first got their laptops and like pro tools <laughs> and started making like super gridded out like clean music that was i guess called like you know somehow fell into the same like bucket but to me i was just like this is like your it felt it feels like a lot of it felt pretty like lifeless to me you know because it was you know it was half of it was made on a computer you know which is you know again no no slight to anyone that likes that stuff but it's just to me it I, i don't know it wasn't it was never that um intriguing to me well, also that emo, like whatever, like, you know, emo, I guess we can just call it emo at this point, yeah. but it's like, yeah. it is one of the most honest genres, like true emo. I mean, where like you have like yeah. a person, like, you know, all the edifice of music is stripped away to the point where the person's like writhing on the floor screaming, uh, you know, it's, there's something so honest and so anti music industry about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, I think that that, um, that's what makes the, um, I guess the more processed or polished version of it sort of so um, glaringly um, <laughs> like uh, disingenuous or something, you know, exactly. you know? Yeah, like know. the kind of, you know, yeah. again, I hate like talking shit on any bands or people. Cause I mean, I think everything's subjective, but you know, you know, I'm talking about like, yep. that era of kind of like hot topic mall, you know, emo, where it was like all over the radio for a second and it had like slight, you know, resemblances to it. But, you know, like a panic at the disco or something where it's like, okay, this is, I guess, I mean, I'm sure if you went and looked at their record collection, they probably have some like at the drive-in records, but it's nothing like it. You know what I mean? It's like only the bad, only the bad parts, you know? Well, it's it, it just like it's there's it's it's when it's real, it's real, you know, and when you see it, you know it like I think once you like once you saw bands in basements doing this stuff, you were never going to accept bands faking that funk like a bunch of yeah. sort of like 80s cock rock style bands dressed up like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going back to like when you first went to CMJ, did they try and pitch Commander Venus kind of as like because there were a lot of bands around that time, like Ben Queller's band before uh-huh. uh, he went solo Rap. and. Radish. Yeah, radish, uh, that's it. And Ben <laughs> Lee um, was kind yeah. of popping off around that time. Did they try and lump you in as sort of like these sort of like 
kid genius songwriters that were happening? Uh, I mean, it's funny because uh, Ben Queller and I are still good friends, and I met him eventually when I went when I moved to New York. He lived out there, you know, two thousand three, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we've been kind of friends ever since. And we've yeah, we've definitely had like weird parallel experiences. <laughs> I mean, like, he was signed to like a major label, I think when he was like 14 or something like that. Um, and you know, that band just basically kind of sounds like, like more melodic Nirvana or something, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So, and yeah, I think there was, I remember being compared to both of Ben Lee and Ben Queller just purely off the age uh, thing, I think. But, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know how much, I mean, honestly, we, Commander Venus never really, um, I don't think we were getting pitched to too many people. I mean, I think we, we kind of lived and died below the surface, which was, which was good. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I think, um, I do, I do remember some of that. And yeah, Ben Queller was, or sorry, Ben Lee was, um, he, yeah, he was noise addict or his yeah. yeah yeah exactly. So I I mean I remember getting getting comparisons to both of those those guys those Bens. Well, it's funny because that you know with with Ben Lee who's been on the show, um, you know it's funny how you know coming from the Sydney punk scene as well. Like it's once again I don't know as much about radish coming out of the punk scene, but um, but with like the two of you, it's like once again very punk kind of uh, informed. Uh, but then, you know, obviously went to completely different places. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't know that much about his, you know, that music either being from Australia, but um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, his mousetrap were the hard-ons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I, it's amazing that you guys kind of wound up doing, uh, you know, soft music given the, the hard-ons influence. But mousetrap, I could yeah. see a lot more. Intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> um, going, uh, you know, back when Bright Eyes kind of, you know, you touched on it there, but like when everything kind of blew up, did did you ever have any temptation? Like, obviously, you led, you know, an incredible campaign to keep <laughs> live music independent and all this sort of stuff. But were you ever? Did you ever have any of that temptation to kind of be like, well, I could like not listen to the Ian Mackay on my shoulder and and go the other way. Uh, yes. I mean, there was our, our philosophy, you know, in the, I would say, you know, cause every, it seemed like, you know, there was a run there where it was like every record, you know, was selling more copies and, um, obviously interest was growing and sort of, you know, uh, news coverage, I suppose was like growing. And so of course, people you know back then there was still you know very lucrative record deals being thrown around mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so we got a, i'll say we got a lot of free dinners out of it you know <laughs> it was like it was like you know so and so wants to take you guys to dinner while you're in you know wherever and it was like absolutely do they know there's like 12 people in the band you know <laughs> and uh <laughs> You know, and we want to go for sushi or whatever. You know, like <laughs> we want the expensive shit. Um, so yeah, we we did a lot of that, but we didn't. I don't think there was any very like serious consideration because we were doing really well on our own label, and it 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 sort of there was also so many examples of people that got signed and then kind of just got swallowed up or disappeared or they didn't know how to market them, and I think that we were already pretty like business savvy in that sense. Um, and so, um, you know, yeah, we were lucky where it didn't seem like the only alternative, which I think a lot of people are like, well, if I don't get signed, nothing will happen. But we had kind of already proven that not to be true, but then, you know, in full disclosure is like after, after like wide awake and digital ash in 2005, we signed a X U S deal so we stay on Saddle Creek in the States, but we signed for everywhere else in the world to Universal and they gave us a lot of money. And that was amazing because that's how we, 
Mike, Mike Mogus and I, that's how we built our crazy studio and that's how we bought our houses. And, um, and it felt like such a, I mean, it really felt like robbing the bank because we're like, we get to stay on our own label in the States. And then we never really had a good situation in Europe or certainly not in, you know, I mean, our records were being released those places, but like Europe and Japan and South America, all these places that like Saddle Creek wasn't really equipped to get much of the word out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was really like the best of both worlds. Got to take a bunch of major label money and not really um, affect what we were doing domestically. So I kind of feel like we, we played, we played chess in the right way with that. And, and then, you know, and then we did, I think the last two records were, you know, half Saddle Creek, half Universal and, um, Universal, like, I mean, it's just classic, like all the people that signed us and gave us all the money and were so excited. That would have been Casadega, you know, 2007. By the time we made People's Key in like 2011, literally none of those people worked at the label anymore. Yeah. It, it was like all these, and I don't, I mean, I'm sure you know how record contracts work, but we were insistent on doing two, you know, what they call firm, like the deal was for two records firm, which means they can't say it's not an option. So they can't say no to the next record. They have to put it out and they have to give you the money they agreed on. So it was just hilarious by like the time 2011 came along, they had lost, they hadn't got any of their money back from <laughs> Casadega and none of the people worked there anymore. And so they're looking at that. We're like, okay, we, you know, it was whatever, four years later, we're like, okay, here's the new record, you know, give us the huge next sum of money. And, and they're just, they're like, who signed this deal? Who are, who is this band? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, Hey, sorry. Like, go look at the contract. And sure enough, they they had to do it. So, you know, I always, I always found that, you know, that's like a, I mean, it definitely didn't make us, you know, more, you know, famous. It didn't get our music more out there, but as far as just like financially, I feel like we, you know, it's in, it just enabled us to do a lot of other things that we probably wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Well, it's amazing now to like think about where the music industry has kind of gone and sort of, the, I guess it'd be the last 10 years, but um, yeah. where we're, you know, Ian McKay and Universal and everyone, we're all on Spotify, you know, like that's yeah. the, even this podcast, like that's the reality is like, it feels like in the nineties, it was possible to have a scene that existed completely without corporate involvement. But mm -hmm. now it's like everything we do, like the moment you turn on your cell phone, you know, like there's, yeah. you know, it's, it's just the world is, is we're no longer in the discord, uh, utopia. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the, and the, I think the impression or like the idea, I mean, I, maybe we talked about this last night too, but like, yeah, the idea of like, you know, quote unquote, selling out or, you know, things that we would have definitely like, you know, snubbed um, back in the day. I don't even think twice about yeah. when it comes to really, you know, my music or other people's, you know what I mean? Like, it's like someone, you know, I can remember like so-and-so was like in a car commercial. Can you believe it? Like yeah. what a bunch of, you know, it's like now it's like anytime like I see like a M word song in a car commercial, I'm like happy. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, it's, you it's know? It, well, like, you know, like the, <laughs> It, like it'd be so weird to picture like Nirvana doing like a McDonald's combo, but like you yeah. know yeah. Travis Scott's got the McDonald's combo now, and it's like yeah. he's the coolest rapper in the world, and it's yeah. it's just like yeah, like the the idea of selling out it just seems so quaint now. Yeah, well, and and I mean, just the reality of it has you know boxed everyone into to like if you want to you know because of streaming and just the whole environment now, it's like if you want to make a living playing music, you sort of have to be open to, you know, just getting creative. And, you know, yeah. unfortunately that a lot of times involves, um, yeah, finding money from sort of something other than record sales. And now, you know, it was always like, what, we can still tour. We can still, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's still the live show. There's still, the, you know, good old fashioned concert tickets and look at us now. You can't even do that. So, yeah, it's getting, it's getting weird. 
Well, like I've had, you know, people on the show that talk about being in bands in the nineties and the concept of like selling through, you know, like 50,000 copies of a CD as like a kind of an unknown commodity as a band, you know, wasn't unheard of, you know, or like, you know, bands, you know, like, like, you know, discord, like, you know, the fact that Fugazi exists, like, is they would sell like a hundred thousand Fugazi CDs at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, we, we sold a lot of CDs. (laughs) Now that I think about it, I'm like, maybe it was the, death of the cd that actually like really did because i mean you know obviously people buy vinyl but not in the not in the bulk that they bought cds you know yeah, I mean, yeah. we were we were like selling like yeah hundreds of thousands of cds on our little label you know yeah. Yeah. and that was just amazing you know what i mean and that's certainly not the case anymore well, it created independent economies, you know, and not just in punk rock. You hear about Too Short, like selling, you know, how many tens of thousands of copies of his records oh. out of the trunk of his car. Oh, absolutely. And it's just with that physical, like it's like, you know, the death of manufacturing in North America kind of thing too, where yeah. once you lose that physical commodity, it, it, it you know, it's, there's not much left. Yeah. It's, and yeah, I mean, and I think that the, you know, the math doesn't really work you know what i mean it's like you can you can spend you know whatever it is ten dollars on one record Mm -hmm. or you can spend ten dollars a month on every record that comes out (laughs) you know what i mean it's like as much as they want to be you know and they do you know obviously they pay people for streaming but it's just it's just yeah there's no way the math is ever going to work out and um yeah it's definitely the musicians are the and the rebels are the ones that pay for it. You know, I mean, I went, um, I went to, uh, I went to Spotify, I guess, like for like a meeting, um, which is funny. You got to go to these places and do favors and take meetings and things. And um, I was with, you know, my manager who's been my manager forever. And he used to work for like Sony publishing and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we walk into their new, like, insane offices, like, in the World Trade Center building in New York. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, last winter, I guess. And, uh, yeah, it was, he was just like, oh, this is where all the money went in the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, this glowing, like, shiny diamond temple. <laughs> like, everyone's, like, you know, it's, like, oh, here it is. That's, this, is this is where it all went. It went somewhere, you know. We we did a Spotify session with Denzel Curry, and I I tried to drink all uh, my owed royalties in kombucha, and so I must have drank like four liters of kombucha. But I don't think I, I scratched the surface. Maybe for fucked up, I did. I might be I might be even now. <laughs> um, I I've kept you for a long time, and uh, you know, at some point, would you come down and back on the show for I I guess like a part three? Absolutely. But bef- before oh, I let you, before I let you go, my brother has sent over some questions uh, that he'd love me to ask you. If that's okay, they're not. Yeah. Don't worry, they're not personal questions. They're I mean, just... as long as they're not math questions, I'm good. <laughs> they're not math questions. I promise. <laughs> um, his the first question he he really wants to find out is where did you get the infamous chilled to the bone sweater from? <laughs> um, I believe that that was a gift from either Todd think or it was definitely uh came from like the faint camp for sure <laughs> um because we had a band pre-faint called uh norman baylor and that was um i know that that's i know that they gave me that sweater i think because i was the only one small enough to wear it and they thought it was hilarious was that like it's got to be a custom-made sweater right like that thing looks incredible no, I think they, I mean, I think they found that at a thrift store. Wow. Because it was, you know, that was the other major um, pastime for those guys besides music was thrifting. So <laughs> that was back before, you know, everyone, there was still, you could still find gems like that in Omaha thrift stores. Um, he also wants to know, what was the reaction like when you, when you played, uh, when the president talks uh, to God on The Tonight Show? Like, was was Jay cool with it? Were the producers and did they know you were going to do that song? So, yes, they had, you know, they wanted me to play 
um, first day of my life mm-hmm. and I really didn't want to do it. Um, and I was like, I, sh- you know, I had written that song and I thought if I'm going to be on TV, like this, I would like to do this. And we, you know, we sent over, it hadn't even been released or anything, but we like sent over a copy of it, sent the lyrics. They were kind of like, no. And then it was, it, it, it like went up the chain of command to like, you know, we had to say no, like several times. And then finally, I think the head producer, she was uh, finally gave it like the green light. And then we were pretty, you know, I was nervous when I went in to do it, obviously. And Jay was really cool. He like, because everyone, I think everyone at the show at that point sort of knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so he came in and like before the the thing and was like, I think it's really great, you know, protest, you know, it's just kind of protest music. It's like, we need more of it. And told me some stories about like in Vietnam, I guess him and some other comedians like actually would do shows in like Canada and, uh, you know, whatever kind of, I guess, express their views up north where it was like a little more, um, you know, well received, I suppose, mm-hmm. or something. And uh, so anyway, he, he sort of told me that story. And then I did the sound check and, you know, I was just dressed normally in like my little black hoodie or whatever. And, and I, after the sound check, I was like, I don't know. I don't feel right about this. And my tour manager at the time, I was like, I was like, Bill, you know, can you get me some kind of cowboy suit or something? I need to like, I need to like be more yeah. ready for this. And uh, he's like, yeah, no problem. Cause we were in LA. So you can get a, rhinestone suit like at the drop of a hat you know yeah of course so he got he got me the suit and you know my theory was like oh if some guy's like watching it like with his wife you know like in the south and he'll be like he'll you know the tv will be kind of low and he'll be like hey honey turn turn this up this looks like a fine outstanding young man here um (laughs) and, and so uh yeah um did it and yeah you know as you'd expect there was definitely mixed mixed reaction Mm -hmm. um but uh went through with it you've definitely like picked some heavy duty battles in your time Mm -hmm. like obviously you know is that is that like something that you took from punk rock or is that you think part of a deeper thing that goes back to people like you know dylan obviously and 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 you know Guthrie before that, obviously, and yeah, I mean, I think it's always been something I've liked in in music, you know, like something mm-hmm. that's like a political band, you know, I mean, obviously, like the clash comes to mind is like they're like one of my all time fave bands, and you know, you know Desparcitos, my other band, you know that was that was another trippy time because we made that first record, literally, we like mixed it, like I think a couple weeks before 9 11 yeah and then we went on tour <laughs> and it was like i mean uh, uh, you know obviously you're canadian but at that time there was you know there was american flags everywhere and it was a very not opportune time to make a sort of slightly anti-american anti-capitalist record mm-hmm. and release it um and uh, yeah, I remember like we played a show like in New York where like Lower Manhattan was still shut down and they had, you know, we had like go through a checkpoint and like looked at all our amps and like it was just like it was a really weird time. And um, yeah, I mean, that's even like and then, you know, that band made another record in 2015 and people have like said to me like, aren't you going to do like a, you know, a President Talks to God too for Trump? I'm like... No, I don't think Trump deserves it, you know, for one. Like, I just want him to go away forever. But, yeah, we made that Paola record, Desperacitos. And, I mean, that's probably the most overtly political album, like, I've ever made. And I don't think any, you know, no one really, it just wasn't, no one really cared. It didn't seem like in 2015. But, uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, I think that if it's done right, it's politics are, you know, can be a very like artistically pleasing part of music, but can also be really kind of corny, you know, too. Well, that's the thing. It's going to be like, it's very hard to like think about writing a 
you know, an aggressive punk song now, I think, because it's like, where you just like look out your window now. Like, I guess it's always been like that. And I shouldn't pretend that it, it, it wasn't until now, but it just feels like it feels like this is every punk song from the 80s come to life. Yeah. I mean, it's so strange. And, and, and again, it's like, I definitely don't want to slight anyone, but the other thing that I have yet to hear, like a quarantine song that has like not felt really lame to me, you know, I mean, I get the impulse to like write it, but, um, and I, I think it's possible. I think some, but I think they'll, there probably will be some good songs that come out of this time, yeah. but I have, I haven't, I haven't heard one yet. And I've heard like a lot of them, like NPR does like a, they're doing some kind of thing where they like highlight a quarantine themed song, you know, like yeah. once a week or something. And I was like, ah, this is rough. I would recommend the Toronto song quarantine by career suicide, which actually came out in 2004. So okay. they were, they were ahead of the curve, but I think they yeah. kind of summed up all our fears in that song way back when, but nice. it, it's hard. Yeah. Like I found, uh, you know, like I'm supposed to be writing lyrics now and I, I, I it's really hard. It's so hard to write lyrics. I find right now. Yeah, I agree. It's hard. To, it's, I've been very like unmotivated this whole time, but it's starting to turn. I'm starting to mm-hmm. find myself picking up guitar again but there was months where i just was like too depressed i just didn't i don't know just didn't want to do anything really everything felt kind of pointless yeah no it definitely it felt like you know i I know what you're saying it's starting to turn in this in the sense but it's uh now i'm like what am i going to write about that's gonna be the hard part so (laughs) um uh, as i say i've kept you forever and i just one last question which uh you know my brother uh, asked me to ask but i've also kind of always wondered this as well but like was lou barlow and sebado and like uh, uh, Heat Miser and Elliot Smith was that stuff informative on what you do, or is it all coming oh. from like Simon Joyner and people like that? No, no, for sure. I um definitely loved uh Sebado, Lou Barlow, and and Elliot. Um, yeah, I remember actually a Commander Venus tour playing in Lubbock, Texas, and this kid that put on a show for us in literally uh pizza shop was like he was like have you ever heard of this guy elliot smith i was like no and he like went to the record store such a sweet guy went to the record store bought me um either or on vinyl and <laughs> i i remember it was weird because i was on tour so i couldn't listen to it yeah but i just kind of looked at it for like two weeks until i got home and then i put it on and i was like yeah huge huge fan of both those and and with Barlow is like Rob Nanzel, the guy I keep talking about the run Saddle Creek. He made like um you know, I mean I think all those records are <laughs> all the songs are cool, but he kinda just wanted you know, he's one of those guys that just wanted the Lou Barlow songs from the <laughs> Sebado records. Yeah. And I remember him making uh this like cassette tape mixtape that like made its rounds amongst our friends where he like went through all the Sebado records and just like put on the you know, the Lou Barlow songs. <laughs> and so, um, spent, spent some time with that for sure. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't made an all Ian Fugazi mixtape at one point. <laughs> so <laughs> I, think, I think we've all picked a favorite in a band with two songwriters at certain times, yeah. but, uh, this has been awesome. And anytime Connor, you want to come back, please know the door is always open. Cool. Thanks, Damien. It's great talking to you and yeah, please take care. And, uh, yeah, my best to, you and yours. Thank you, Connor, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Connor will be back for a part two or three or two and a half, whatever, at some point in the future, because that was a lot of fun. That was, you know, that's why I do this thing. I get to talk to, you know, Connor Oberst, you know, from Bright Eyes about cap and jazz. That's, that's really why we, why we're here. That is why we are here. Speaking about why we are here, next week we are going to be here for episode three fucking hundred. I can't believe it. I I, I really am shocked that we made it this far. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for supporting this thing and believing in this thing and sticking around. And uh, yeah, and to, to the Patreons and to Vans and to my brother Tristan and to 
uh, Lauren, my long-suffering wife, and my kids, and and, and Brian, and uh, Amy, and Kim, and everyone that has made this thing possible. All the guests, holy. Oh, I got a lot to be grateful for with this podcast. But next week, we are going to be celebrating uh, a milestone you know, remember episode, remember issue 300 of The Amazing Spider-Man? Uh, the iconic Todd McFarlane art, you know, the, the 300's a big one. 300's a big one. And it's going to be a big show. I might have to break it up into two parts because I think it's too big to be uploaded as one file. Uh, but we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Oh, I'm excited for this one. Okay, uh, it's, it's, it's full of surprises, full of hopefully a bunch of different guests. And uh, you'll hear it all next week on the show. All right. That's it. I'm rambling now. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much, so much to all the people over there on Patreon that make this thing possible. And thank you to Vans. Remember as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to protect trans people. Um, go out there, get yourself informed, read, uh, sign petitions, uh, protest, uh, make your voice heard. Uh, we got to fucking smash fascism, you know, uh, as consolidated said, you don't want a Nazi in your house. Don't let one. And we can't let these guys back, uh, these people back. So, uh, fuck fascism, uh, make your own culture. It'll help. As I said, off the top today, it it really does help you kind of get through things. What else? Uh, sign your organ donor cards, please. Everyone. Uh, please sign your organ donor cards and, and, uh, cause you, by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. It's like, take them. I don't need this shit. And, uh, wear a mask, stay safe. And I will see you next episode. I love you. Bye. <laughs>